Previously on Electric Bookaloo. Are you suggesting, Dr. Webster, yeah. that Cal Drogo is a secret Targaryen? Either that or Blackfire. <laughs> I'm not sure which. Welcome to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Boogaloo. I am your host, Anthony. Today we'll be talking about Chapter 4 with Dr. Chad Carmichael. Chad is a philosopher and an old friend, and I always have an enormous amount of fun talking with Chad about almost anything, but specifically Game of Thrones. We'll check in with Steve as he's done his first watch of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. If you're interested in anything going on at Bald Move, check out baldmove.com. I recommend the club. If you're interested in sending feedback, you can send that to book at baldmove.com. Please rate and review this podcast if you haven't done so already. And tell a friend. Who knows? Maybe if we can keep our numbers up, we can keep this podcast rolling past Chapter 9. Without further ado, here is Dr. Chad Carmichael. Chad Carmichael, welcome to this podcast. Thanks for having me. Are you nervous? No. You're not nervous. It's not live. And no, so it, that's true. We can always edit anything out that it's unsavory. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so it, it doesn't make me nervous. It just it feels like two old friends having a talk about something we've talked about a hundred times before. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that because this is a chapter about two old friends. Yeah. Chad. Yes. Shall we talk about our voices? Sure. What is your relationship to your own voice? Uh, my relationship to my voice, I guess. Well, I'm a, I'm a teacher. I teach um, uh, philosophy. And uh, so I, I do a lot of lecturing. I guess I, I, don't, I haven't thought very much about my voice, although I, I guess I've had to confront my voice a little bit more directly in the last week or two as we've been having to record lectures and, uh, and, and interact with students online more. And so I end up hearing myself more often re- in recorded form. Um, and, and what is your sense of it as, you're, uh, as you hear it? Uh, I don't know. I guess I don't have much. I guess I think I have a fairly normal voice. I hope that's true. You know what? You do have a normal voice. So I don't know if that's a compliment or whatever. <laughs> but I, you, you're one of the... You know what? I think your your voice matches your physique. You're one of these few people who you just look like a normal guy and you just have a normal voice. Well, there you go. I'm I'm happy with that. <laughs> Which makes you somewhat unique. I've, <laughs> I've I've always I've always wanted for things like my voice or how my how I dress or what I look like or that sort of thing. I've always wanted that to sort of fade into the background. I've always wanted as a human being for people to find my ideas interesting, not because of my degree or the way that I look or the way that I present myself, but just because the ideas themselves are interesting. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've always sort of aspired to that. I don't, You've I don't always know. aspired to, to uh, superficial normalcy. Yeah, I mean, on the stuff that's superficial and normal, superficial and and, and unimportant. Right, right. Uh, No, I get it. I get it. All right. Um, (laughs) So, okay. So we're covering chapter four of A Game of Thrones, and this is Eddard Stark's first POV chapter. And so, Chad, I'm just going to go ahead and and I'll do a a quick synopsis 
of this chapter and whatever I've left out, we can fill in in our conversation. Okay. Okay, so here's my synopsis. The king's party arrives at Winterfell and this means that Baratheons and Lannisters are flooding the walls of Winterfell. And after some notable key character introductions, there's the true reunion between Ned and, and Robert. And Robert asks to show his respects to Lyanna. They go down to the crypts of Winterfell, and they have this long conversation. And as they meander through the crypts, they, they visit her grave. And their conversation kind of is a tour of the Seven Kingdoms and the distant past and the most more recent past. So we get to hear about the death of Ned's father and brother and the battle at the Trident and John Arryn's mysterious death. And then finally, Robert asks Ned to take over as Hand of the King. Ned says he's honored and politely asked to think it over. And in, in, in many ways, it's a very uneventful chapter. Yeah, yeah, in, in, in some ways. And in other ways, it plants a lot of really important seeds. And it's, the, it's a chapter that people will come back and read again. Right. So I think that they're laying a lot of track here. So yeah. um, I think maybe on first read, and I, I don't remember my first read of this chapter very well, but I think on first read, it's like, man, there's a lot of people and places that are being introduced here. And I don't really know what to do with all of this. Yeah, but I think when I read it the very first time, I think he does a good job of hinting at certain mysteries. Mm -hmm. You're so unclear at this stage. I mean, this is chapter four of this very, very long tale. And you're so unclear at this stage what the heck is going on that you don't even really know what questions to ask. And so I think I found for me, like a lot of it just kind of washed over me and I didn't even know what mattered or what didn't matter the first time I read it. It's for that reason, I think later on when you when you start to get drawn further into some of these mysteries, you you end up coming back and reading. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I think you're right. And I think that especially the question of John's parentage, when that becomes a key plot point, yeah. I think that once the reader is convinced of the, you know, this fan theory that the in reality John's true mother and father are different than what we had expected. Right. I think that this may be the chapter that they come back to and okay, first the here here it is. The first seeds of this particular mystery are here in this chapter and specifically because Ned and Robert are talking about why Liana is buried here in the, these cold crypts and Robert would rather have her buried high on a hill with the rain to wash her clean under a fruit tree right, and all of that right. business. Well, so, Robert Robert shows up and he's he's got a lot of ideas about what Ned should be doing, how Ned should be addressing him, mm -hmm. where Ned should be living, where Ned should have buried his sister, what, you know, a lot of things. You sort of get I get this picture of Robert kind of messing up Ned's hair and giving him a noogie, you know. Yeah, that's right. That's part of their relationship. And in the, in the midst of that conversation, Ned says she's here because she's of the North and I was with her when she died. And Ned's thinking back to her deathbed yeah. and she says, promise me. And then, you know, it's kind of vague. You would think by the context, she, what she's talking about is promise me that you'll bury me in the crypts of Winterfell. Yeah. But in retrospect, we're looking back and we're thinking, promise me, oh, this is, this is the first, this is the first glimpse of this conversation where Ned has made this promise to his sister that will that really sort of unfold one of these key plot points. And the, the promise we come to believe is to raise Jon Snow as his own son. 
and lie about it. Lie about yeah. his true parentage because that yeah. would put John Protect in mortal him. peril, you know? Right, right. Okay, so we've rounded into this relationship between Ned and Robert, right? Yeah. So you think that this is a head-tussling relationship? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it says early in the, in the chapter that Ned, it's, it said something like Ned loved Robert for, for wanting to pay respects first thing when he showed up. Mm-hmm. And, and you do get a sense that Ned cares for Robert. You get the sense that he's troubled too, because Robert's put on like a hundred pounds. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he looks like a drunk and stuff like this. But there is some underlying love there. And, and these guys have been through a lot together, though they haven't seen each other for a long time, right? But yeah, I'm struck at the way that Ned is very kind of accommodating to Robert. He treats him like a king. Uh-huh. But but Robert treats Ned like a little brother. Ned keeps on calling him your grace, your grace, yeah. and showing him every courtesy of a king. That's right. And Robert's kind of not having it. Right. I mean, by the end, he, he literally says, quit calling me your grace. You know, right. We're right. closer than that. You don't need to call me that. All right. We're going to do the guest choice portion of the podcast. Okay. Which means uh, you can choose a, a character, you can choose a plot point, a theme, or we can just climb the ladder of chaos, which means we just kind of see where the conversation goes. Uh, I'm choosing chaos. You're choosing chaos. Chaos. I, this is this is not in keeping with your personality. Yeah, well, I, I you know, I, I read the chapter again last night. I, I, t- I jotted down a few things that I thought were interesting, and uh, I, I just want to talk about all of it. Okay, um, good. Let's talk more about, if you don't mind, since you brought it up previously, uh, this relationship between Ned and Robert. Okay. Incidentally, I, I, it's a little unclear to me why Ned is supposed to be short for Eddard. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's like a Margaret Peggy sort of... <laughs> thing yeah, I guess. How, how do we get peggy from margaret <laughs> yeah there's a, n- a number of names like that i guess yeah, sure um, sure sure all right here's what i was thinking i was rereading this last night and i was thinking i think that there's i think the obvious observation to make here is that you interact with friends differently when you're 20 than when you're 35 I th- and i think that these two have lived a much different life in the span of the years between the trident and the Mm -hmm, the current mm -hmm. age. So age just brings out a different aspects of different characters. Sure. However, I think that there's something, something else that's interesting about these two. And I want to get your, your take on this. I would imagine that there is a difference between a wartime comrade and this, that same comrade in peace several years later. So I think that there's, it's not just a difference between being in your 20s and being in your 30s. There's also a difference of being a comrade in arms versus being sort of political allies in peace. What do you think mm-hmm. of that? Yeah, I, I've never, obviously, I've never, I've never served in a war. Uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, I've, I haven't been a soldier, but I imagine that there's a kind of bonding that happens when you, you are together facing an immediate physical threat and depending on one another in, in all sorts of different ways for your safety. I think there's, there's got to be a special bond that happens in that moment. And I would imagine that when the moment is passed and you're safe again, that what bonds you at a later date is not obviously going to be an immediate threat when you're mm-hmm. safe uh, once again. It's going to be the memory that, of the things that you went through. And I, I suppose that ideally friends 
of course, old friends will have memories together that do bond them. And, and I think that's a, that's a precious thing. But I think ideally, your friendship goes on into the present where present concerns and present needs and present considerations play, a, play some role in bringing you together. Mm-hmm. And what I see between these two guys is that they have a lot of good memories of being bonded, but present considerations are hard on their relationship. Okay. In addition to that, I mean, yes, absolutely. I think that we're talking about something like the intimacy of war. Yeah, sure. I think the closest thing that I have to rely on in my own experience is the um, incredible feelings of gratefulness that I had toward the, the nurses that attended my wife when she was giving birth. Mm, um, mm. especially, you know, when my first was born and my wife had a, a troubled labor and, and there was, there was uh, some danger medically, just the feeling of helplessness and the gratefulness that you feel toward a person who is there to help you and knows what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I didn't know the, these women who attended my wife. I didn't know them the day before, but the day of, I felt so grateful to them and so bonded to them. And, yeah, they're the most important people in the world at that at that, at that moment. moment. Yeah, and yeah. so you know, even if I saw them now, I would they would have a special place in my heart, even though it's been sixteen years since hmm, that day. That's interesting. But in a friendship, you want you want the life of the friendship to be developing in real time as you as you move forward together. You know, you you, you don't want it all to be in the past. Okay, so back to Robert and Ned. Yeah. So I think that. I think that Robert really looks fondly upon his sort of glory days, right? Yeah. And I sort of imagine a uh, a sort of heavy metal god, you know. I imagine a, like a 1980s <laughs> you know, the flowing hair and the rippling muscles. He's he's Jim Morrison is what Yeah, definitely. Yeah, something like maybe maybe like a a more an even more muscle-bound version. <laughs> He's like, I don't know. Yeah. Vince Neal or something. Okay. So he's Vince Neal. All right. So Robert's, so Robert's looking back on the glory days and things were simpler back then. And he's a, he's sort of like, he's kind of a simple guy. You give him, you know, you give him a party and with all of the, all of the elements of, of a good party and Robert's happy. Ned, Ned is not quite that way. And I think that if we read a little bit further, we find out that really Robert, not, not only does Robert long for the glory days of when he won the throne, he kind of sees a, a war on the horizon. And he's part, part of the reason that he wants Ned to serve as Hand of the King is that he knows that there is going to be some sort of war um, upcoming. Yeah. And Ned is the opposite. Ned, Ned is, I think, a man of peace. He, he wants to keep the peace up north, and that's his mission. That's his whole life mission. He's going to do well by the people in the north and, and keep the peace as well as he can. And this is going to put these two at odds, I think. Yeah, that might be right. I don't know if I agree with what you said about Roberts. It sounds so reason. It sounds much more reasonable than I take Robert to be. I mean, he's clearly he's concerned a little bit about war. He does mention that when he says that he he's not naming the child as uh, the Lord of the Eerie. Yeah, Ned is kind of surprised, and he says something like, "Well, you know, he can't lead in a war." Right. So yeah, Robert Aaron is six and sickly, and he's he's not going to be able to hold the East in a war, right? So he's not going to be warden of the East. So Ned, yeah. Ned replies by saying, look, the title is 
honorary in peacetime. What, what are we right. talking about here? Right. So clearly you're right that Robert has some concern about war, but I mean, he explicitly says his reason for wanting Ned to be the hand and that's so that he can get back to drinking and whoring. Well, what he says, what he says, <laughs> he says, I want you to uh, run my kingdom and fight my wars. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. So in other words, while, you know, while I drink and wench myself to an early death, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the part I remember. So yeah. that's, that, that's when I say he's kind of a simple man. That's, that's what I mean by that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think that there's something about, there's something about being a soldier where, yeah. you know, you don't have all of these other complexities kind of maybe fade while you're focused on just surviving and you know winning the next objective or something like that. Yeah, I, I think Ned. it's not. It's not very. It, it made me think that Robert is not a good friend. I mean, he doesn't like this job. Uh huh. Uh huh. He knows that Ned wants to stay w- where he is. Mm-hmm. And instead, he's going to bring Ned this this frozen man of the north. He's going to bring him down south where it's hot and crowded, and he's going to well make him the hand, which. Uh, uh, according to Robert, means that he gets to eat and Ned has to do the dirty business, right? That's a sort of the right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, and, uh, and and so what? I mean, I when I read that, I thought, would I do this to my friend? Would I would I call upon my friends to do such a burdensome job that I do not want to do? Okay, so Chad Carmichael, yeah, you are a philosopher. Yes, and this this conversation recalls to me. Aristotle's three levels of friendship. Okay. Right. I don't know right. that much about Aristotle. Okay. <laughs> All right. No, well, let, if you're a professional thinker. So let me, That's true. let me recount what I think I remember about these three levels of friendship Yeah. for Aristotle. Okay. So first level of friendship is the friendship of utility. And what Aristotle says about the friendship of utility is that it's not bad. It's just the friendship that you would have with like the butcher. You know, you, you walk down to the market, you order your meat, you have a pleasant relationship. It, it serves you to have a pleasant relationship mm-hmm. with, with the butcher. And I shouldn't use pleasant because that's the, the next level, but it, it serves you to have a good working relationship yeah. uh, with the butcher. Same thing with, Courtesy. I think, yes, I think modern, modern folks, like if you had a roommate, it, it, ser- it's, it serves a good purpose to have a good relationship with your roommate. You don't have to be best friends, yeah. but eventually you're going to want the bills paid and you don't want to feel weird living in your own house. Yeah. Okay. So I think Aristotle would call that a friendship of utility. Um, next level is what Aristotle would call the friendship of pleasantness or pleasure. And this is simply like, if you're at a party, who's going to make you laugh the most? Who's, who's going to make you feel better about yourself and make you, you just feel better, feel good. It just feels yeah. good to be around that person. Mm-hmm. And I think most, uh, most like online relationships are, are friendships of pleasure. Like if someone doesn't make you feel good on Facebook, you, you unfriend them or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the, the, the highest level of friendship for Aristotle is this friendship of, of, of mutual virtue. Mm-hmm. where you uh, want the best for the other person. In fact, you want, you want your personage to bring the best virtue out of the other person. And you want that person, it's sort of like iron sharpening iron. Like we are better people mm-hmm. because we are, we are friends. You make yeah. me a better person, I make you a better person. My feeling 
Well, let me ask you, uh, given those three stages, utility, pleasantness, and virtue, what level of friendship do these two men have? Yeah, I think they definitely don't seem to me to be enjoying each other. Oh, oh, well, I, I disagree. <laughs> okay, well, but, but keep going, keep going. Let's take it one at a time. Ned, Ned's not enjoying Robert. He's finding Robert troubling and troubled. He is concerned about what Robert's going to be asking him to do. Yeah, yeah, He's all that continually, I agree. Sh- continually shocked by the decisions Robert has made. Plans that Robert has uh-huh. are, are troubling to Ned. I, I don't find that Ned is enjoying Robert. Uh, is Robert enjoying Ned? I mean, I feel like he's sort of through the scene. He's trying to enjoy Ned. He's hugging him. He's uh, he's kind of trying to draw some emotion out of him. He's continually frustrated at Ned's kind of frozen face. But yeah, I mean, he wants to enjoy Ned, but he's not. Is is how I, is how I read it. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think I think what the way I would characterize at least how their relationship looks at in this scene is they maybe both feel some kind of duty or des- even just a out of love a desire to have a friendship of the, mm-hmm. of the highest sort the the, uh, the unselfish one. Okay, I'm going to read you a little passage from the book here. But then the way it actually plays out is that Robert is is utilizing him. I think, I think you're right. I think you're right on almost every front here. Okay. Uh, Martin writes, no sooner had those formalities of greeting been completed than the King said to his host, take me down to your crypt, Eddard. I would pay my respects. Mm -hmm. Ned loved him for that, for remembering her still after all these years. So I think that there is, there is affection there. I think Ned, Ned loves him. The question is, what is that? What sort of love, love are we talking about? Yeah. And I think that Ned has this complicated relationship with Robert. I think he I loves him for maybe the memory of the man he used to be. Sure. And I think Ned, I think, I think Robert actually loves Ned because he, Ned makes him feel like a younger man. Just, just yeah. the, his very presence makes him feel better about, you know, the, what he once did and what he accomplished and what life was like when he was in his 20s. Well, I think both in both cases, I think you have a fondness that is very much sort of mm-hmm. rooted in the past. Yeah. I think Robert likes Ned because Ned reminds him of the old days and mm-hmm. the old days were a lot better for Robert. And I think Ned likes Robert. Well, that's the one the one positive thing I think that Ned He loves Robert. Said. Yeah, loves loves Robert. That's the yeah. one positive thing that Ned thinks or feels in the in the chapter about Robert is is this very after all these years kind of feeling. Okay. So I think we're going to both agree that these two do not enjoy a friendship of mutual virtue. Yeah. Well, I mean, with Ned, it's tricky. So it's definitely not mutual, right? Robert is utilizing him. I mean, yes, is not, is not in Ned's best interest. What Aristotle would say is that you don't graduate from one by discarding the previous so you can uh-huh. build on these you yeah. can become fast friends you know kindred spirits with your butcher yeah it's possible yeah it uh, doesn't mean that he, he doesn't sell you meat anymore or whatever so i think you're right i think that there is some you there is a, a heavy level of utility happening here robert really wants to use ned politically right yeah yeah he wants to use sansa politically right so there is certain utility in that. And I wonder if that's always the case with a head of state, 
like everyone, like even your friends, you have to look at politically at some point. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how that works. Being friends with someone in a, in a role like that, kind of a public figure, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be tricky because, you know, there's kind of duties that you feel to the public, like the, the well-being of this person who serves a large number of people, it affects all those people. And so your friendship with them is in a way becomes service to all those people that they serve. Mm-hmm. And it's a weird, complicating factor in a friendship because in a way you'd like for a friendship to primarily at least involve the two individuals involved uh, directly in the friendship. And, and to, to introduce these other factors, these external factors can be a little, can kind of cloud the waters a little bit. In this particular relationship, there's yeah. this hierarchy of concerns. And one level of maybe the highest level of concerns are, are these political considerations in that I think that Ned views it as his highest calling to do well by the people of the North. Yeah. And that extends beyond his, his family. He's kind of the father to the entire region. Mm-hmm. But he answers to a father figure and at this point, and that is, that is Robert because he's, Robert is father of the entire realm. Yeah. And the tension here is that Robert kind of does not, I won't say kind of, Robert does not view the North as, as all that significant. He doesn't think it's that important. Yeah. He, he said, you know, he tells Ned, what do you, you're, you're no good. You're no use to anyone up way up right. here at the edge of right. the world. Everything that's really important that's happening in the realm is really happening in these other six kingdoms and, and Ned's being wasted. Up sure. At one point, Robert says, where, where are all the people? <laughs> yeah, where are all your people? <laughs> sure. Yeah, you have this sense that that Robert, it, the, the North is filled with snow and this weird yeah. wall, and yeah, uh, which which Robert doesn't care about the wall, by the way. I mean, Ned yeah. brings it up, and Ned's concerned about it, right? Uh huh. Uh-huh. And uh, Robert sort of ah, who cares about the wall? Yeah, it's it's stood for eight thousand years. years. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah so that that's good that's good okay all right so notable introductions to and and feel free to i know that you've taken notes so feel free to chime in if any of these grab you yeah in this chapter we're introduced to sandor clegane and his terrible burned face yeah all right i know that the hound is is a favorite of yours yeah by the way why why is that why why are you why do you have affinity for the, this this uh, that's a good question. Wounded um, and ruined creature. I mean, I think my my experience reading is the is this sort of you know unanalyzed you know it's just it's just my I have a positive reaction to him, but I I, I guess I, I like I like characters who cut through the crap. You know, mm-hmm. he's very much into cutting through the crap, and that's he's that, he is he is a man of candor, if nothing yeah, else. Yeah, that, that's right, that's right. And you know, there's a there's a certain um, it's interesting, I guess. Characters who have great challenges are are interesting, and he, and here's a guy that has a lot of well, he's 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 gotten a raw deal, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and and so I think it's interesting to see him try to cope with the raw deal that he's gotten, and and I think sometimes he makes choices that are admirable, even though it takes no doubt courage and strength. Yeah, to, Mark to Martin really likes to do that. He likes to have a, a moment of virtue change your opinion about someone yeah who looks like a creature of darkness right yeah yeah i think that the other thing about the character that's 
interesting to me is just sort of, you know, he's a horrible person. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a murderer. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a killer and he likes right. killing, right? Yeah, so I, no, I noticed myself responding positively to him at certain points and then like having to remind myself of, of the horrible things he's done uh-huh. yeah. and, and that there's really no excuse for well, some of the things. He's Yeah, right. So he is... He brings a level of complexity that is a delight, I think. I think in another way, he's just sort of the, uh, he's, a, he's a very roguish character, and I like roguish characters. Sure, yeah. Okay, so we're introduced to Tyrion. Well, we, see, we see the first glimpse of Tyrion Lannister, who's called the Imp. We're introduced to the Snow White Cloaks of the Kingsguard. We hear of Balin Greyjoy's rebellion for the first time. We find out that Jamie and Cersei are twins. We knew that, I think we knew that they were brother and sister before, but now we know that they are twins. We find out that before there were lords of Winterfell, there were kings of the north, long before the dragon lords came from across the sea. Howland Reed is mentioned, a little Cranig man. Mm-hmm. We hear the title, The Hand of the King, for the first time. We hear of Lord Tywin, and Ned says that he would sooner trust a pit viper than Lord Tywin. Yeah. So these are all like really crucial characters to the story. And all we get is a little glimpse of each of these. He does a really good job of immediately giving the reader a sense of revulsion toward the Lannisters. Yes. Good. Yeah, absolutely. They're vipers. They look like they're made of gold, right? Right. Uh, this is not necessarily a, a positive uh, statement in the in the story. Since we're mostly introduced to Robert for the first time, I want to read you his Robert's description. Okay. <laughs> okay. Six and a half feet tall, he towered over lesser men. And when he donned his armor and the great antlered helmet of his house, he became a veritable giant. He had a giant strength too. His weapon of choice was a spiked iron warhammer that Ned could scarcely lift. In those days, the smell of leather and blood had hung to him like perfume. Now it was perfume that clung to him like perfume. The king had gained at least eight stone, a beard as coarse and as black as iron wire covered his jaw to hide his double chin and the sag of the royal jowls. But nothing could hide his stomach or the dark circles under his eyes. (laughs) I I love that. All right. Nothing could hide the stomach. Yeah. Okay, this is a, clearly, this is a character whose, his best days are, are way behind him, right? <laughs> right. It's a great depiction of a man who was once a great warrior. Yeah. And has it, not fared well yeah. uh, with wealth, I think. Yeah, that's how he's introduced to us. And then, and then through the rest of the chapter, especially if you know what's going to happen, which of course the first time you read it, you don't, but if it's... If you know what's going on, by the end of the chapter, reading it last night, I felt like, man, not, not only are his best days behind him and he's sort of physically in decline, uh-huh. but he's in this position where he's completely being played for a fool by absolutely every single person in his life, uh, except maybe Ned. Uh, well, John Oren probably tried to do right by him, Yeah, which dead. is probably why John Oren had to die. Right. So, yeah, I mean, he's sort of, um, he's a fool is how he comes off to me. He's mm-hmm. a fool. And I, I think at a basic level, I don't even understand why he wanted to be king. I think he doesn't understand why he wanted to be king. Huh, yeah. I, I, it never was a job that would be, that he would be suited for. I think he wanted to be king because he wanted to win. Yeah, yeah. But I think uh, Ned is much more, well, it's funny because I, I guess... I don't know where I get this, but over the years, I've definitely gotten the sense that George Martin does not really like Ned very much. 
And huh. what makes and, you think that? Uh, I guess I don't have a specific memory of interviews with Martin where he talks about Ned in a, in a negative way, but, but I have some vague memory that he sort of, you know, talks about Ned being, well, not a relatable character. Hmm. That's um, interesting. Okay. Uh, and Martin certainly likes rogues. He likes rogues and he yeah. likes w- very witty people. I wouldn't say that Ned is either of those things. Right. Right. I think that sometimes Ned among the fans or, or, uh, or commenters has gotten a reputation for being a bit naive. And I, I thought it's interesting that in this chapter, Ned comes off as a, as a fairly wise person. I think so. I, early on in this book, yeah. he really does seem like the ideal father figure. You know, yeah. it's not like he's waxing on and reciting poetry or whatnot. Yeah. Well, um, he didn't, he didn't want to be King. He didn't want to be King's hand. Right. He doesn't want power. Right. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. It's not, it's, it's not this, what you described as Robert wanted to win, right? It's, it's, it's sort of, that's sort of a dumb idea. What do you, you want to win what? Uh, to, to what end? Like what, yeah. what purpose? Is, how is that going to change yeah. your life? How is yeah. that going to serve anyone? Uh, yeah. Are you, are you in the realm going to be happier for this victory? Yeah. Robert's not going to think ahead. Robert is not going to consider that question. He just, he's yeah. just, I want to, I want to be on the ahead. top. I want to stand on top of the mountain with my arms up. You're right. right, right. I want to be the best and the strongest and the tallest. And I, I want to be the king. And what does that mean? I don't want to think about it. <laughs> that's that's for people that count coppers to think about. That's right. Exactly. It's very foolish. And so as a result, he's surrounded by people. Every part of the story he tells about his own life is is a deception. Even the things he believes about uh, uh, yes. Liana and you know, he thinks that Rhaegar raped her. I guess I don't know if this is known or if this is speculated, but I guess we believe that Rhaegar and Liana were in a consensual marriage together. <laughs> well, they were lovers. They were they they were deeply and madly in love. That's the alternative story, right? And I, and I think people have speculated at least that they were actually married. Um, oh yes. Okay. Well, yeah. yes. I think and I think that that is a okay. So that's good. So we're we're moving to book versus show differences. Yeah. If you've watched ahead in in the shows. It is discovered uh, that they were married in secret. Now, I don't know if that's going to actually find its way into the book. Right. But, uh, but yeah. So, in, in other words, the virtue of finding out that detail means that, that Jon Snow, who's really a Targaryen, was not born out of wedlock. And so he is the, the natural successor to the throne. Right. Okay. So, so there you go. I, in this chapter, I don't see many other book differences. I, the conversation is longer and more meandering. Mm-hmm. They have to introduce places like the Eerie. There's some differences there. I don't know that, that the actor is very, the actor who plays Robert Baratheon is very well cast. I, I, I don't get the, the sense that that particular actor was ever a great warrior who stood six foot six and yeah, yeah, carried a war hammer. That's so a tall I, order. Yeah, it's true. But they found some really great <laughs> actors for these other roles now okay so we're talking about book sh- book uh, differences versus show differences and i don't think that there are many to be had here but this might be a good time to talk about your interesting relationship to game of thrones in general uh well i i have not watched the show so you're one of the very few who's read these books right and probably read a game of thrones multiple times right yeah i've, I've read all the books twice okay 
I read, I read them once years ago, uh, around the time I think a dance with dragons came out. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I read them all around that time. And then, and then recently anticipating that the next book in the series would be coming out. I, I read them again and probably finished my second read a, a year ago <laughs> thinking the book was on its way out. Uh, talk about foolish characters. Yeah, no doubt. That was a um, very foolish move. Yeah. Yeah, now I'm going to have to read it a third time to be ready for the new book, right? Okay, so why did you begin when you did if the show wasn't the sort of the your Yeah. Well, chief I'm motivation. sure that the, the fact that the show began it sort of made it a, a broader audience uh, aware of the story. And, mm-hmm. And then because of that, I heard about it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the sort of thing that I like. I mean, I like fantasy and science fiction. So I often hear that. I often hear people say I like fantasy and science fiction. But yeah. I don't think that it's – I think that they're saying more than what they mean. All right, yeah. So I'm going to test the, my theory out on you. Okay. My feeling is that people that say I like fantasy and science fiction like science fiction. And, but they like a few works of fantasy – a lot, and maybe even more than any of their science fiction. But it's probably like a handful of fantasy books and a lot yeah. more science fiction. What, yeah. Is that true of you? Uh, that's probably true. Yeah, that's probably true. Because my feeling is that most fantasy is just unreadable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I sort of... You have to be really, really talented to create an entirely yeah. new world. I agree with you. And make I, it compelling I, and make the characters, you know, characters that you fall in love with. It really takes some sort of Tolkien or Martin-esque talent to do that sort of thing. Yeah. I, I am very picky. And so, I mean, even when it comes to science fiction, I'm very picky. And I, I, think, I, I think what I would say is I like the idea of fantasy and the idea of science fiction much more than I like most of what actually is produced. And I, you know, I, I don't necessarily think everybody should be that way. I, maybe that's a defect on my part. But, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm very picky. I, I want books to be top quality, and I, I really, I won't even make my way through a book if I, if it's not, if it's not a great book. So I don't know. I mean, you're right. There's a lot of trash, but I do like both kinds of story. But yeah, I, I surely have read more science fiction than fantasy. I, I would say that's true. All right, uh, Chad. Yes. All right, a question that I did not prepare you for, so you can choose to answer this or not, because it okay. may be too personal. Okay. If you think of all of the characters in all of these books in The Song of Ice and Fire, which character do you think your friends and family think you are? So who do they think you are? Mm-hmm. But deep down inside, who do you most feel like? <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez. Uh, it's, it's tough because honestly, you know, as I think through all of the characters, I sort of feel like to say of any other person that they are most like this or that character is a bit of an insult. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm asking you to insult yourself twice. Yeah. They're, they're all deeply uh, flawed and um, in many, in many ways, I think there's not really an admirable character in the story. I think you're wrong, but you can go ahead and, and, and I mean, it's like, a lot of people say that. Yeah. It's like I said before, it's sort of like there's a suspension of reservations about Mm -hmm. the characters as you work your way through the story, because you sort of, 
it's a story and you need to have empathy for the characters. And uh-huh. so you end up having empathy with, you know, the hound or something. And it's like, well, I mean, you know, the guy is, you know, in, in the modern world for what he's done, he's belongs in prison or the death penalty. Or yeah, something. that's right. Um, and so, so, okay. So but who, if I, this if, goes if, back to our conversation about wartime virtue, right? Mm-hmm. Because there are certain people who are very valuable in wartime that, mm-hmm. Should, that need, really do need to be in prison <laughs> mm-hmm. d- during peacetime, you know? The Hound's yeah. one of those characters. Yeah, so maybe, look, I mean, I'm a father, and that's maybe my one of my biggest roles in life. And and so maybe maybe that makes people think of Stark. Sure. Edward yeah. Stark. So, He's so, a very you know, admirable father. Yeah, my, my, my children, my wife, perhaps they would say that about me. I, I don't know. Uh, uh, I th- I think the people that I most feel like Ned is a very cold person. He's a very cold personality, very stern, but he's not with his children. He's warm to his and I think he's warm to his his wife and children and probably a, a collection of of close yeah, close friends. I think, I think Ned can be inflexible. That's maybe that's the reason he ends up dead. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's naive so much as it is inflexible. He's got an idea how things should be and how he should proceed. Well, I think I think to give, I I tend to think that this whole stupid Ned trope is maybe overdone. It's kind of funny to call him a numpty head or whatever. I think you're probably right. He's inflexible. I also think that he's not so much stupid or naive as he just has a different set of priorities, and he's not willing to compromise certain priorities in his life. Yeah. I would say that I do relate to his inflexibility. I think I could be inflexible. All right. Okay. So uh, this is, is this how people perceive you or how you perceive yourself? Well, I think, you know, if you don't know me very well, you probably mostly have interacted with me in casual ways and I'm extremely flexible when it's, when things are casual, but it's when things get difficult that I can become very difficult and uncompromising. I mean, I, you know, everyone has, everyone has that little area where if you trespass on this particular area, (laughs) you're going to find out that I actually do care about things and I'm very particular about how this is supposed to go. Yeah, that's right. You know, I'm 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 usually very flexible, but but when I, when I care about something like I care about my kids' education, right? I can be uh-huh. very very inflexible uh-huh. and 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 kind of difficult. You know, I mean, they they might see me that way. Who do I think I am? I mean, <laughs> this is difficult questions. Uh, so you're like Ned bordering on Tywin. Yeah, maybe. That's this is not good. This is not good. So. Far. <laughs> I guess, you know, maybe I'll say I sort of aspire. How about this? I, I, I really do love Tyrion's wittiness and his, yeah. his excellence when it comes to strategic matters. Those are things I value that I'd like to be good at. I like the Hound in the way that he is, um, uh, as I said before, he sort of yeah. sort no, of no, no, through no, the crap. No, 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 no. This is not, I'm not asking who your favorite character is. I'm asking <laughs> you who. <laughs> who I am. I'm asking you, do, yeah. deep down inside, you, you, you know how that person ticks because there's a lot of that person deep down in, inside you. Yeah. I don't think I have an answer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's totally, that's yeah. a totally legitimate answer. Okay. Yeah. Let me, since you wimped out. So I think I'm going to try to answer your previous statement that there's really no wholly good characters. Yeah. And like everyone's a flawed character, right? I think measured by 
the standards of the modern world, Samuel Tarly is pretty much an altogether virtuous character. Mm-hmm. His fatal flaw in the story is that he's a coward. Yeah. But he overcomes it. He overcomes it. I mean, he, that, that's the problem that he's able to overcome to make his character arc work. So even that he overcomes. And mm-hmm. I don't see that he's a flawed character in the same way that I see that Danny or anyone like that is, is flawed in that way. And I think that that's, that's I, I think it probably has to do with the fact that he's something of a Mary Sue for Martin. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I think his cowardice, though he overcomes it, his cowardice is, uh, is very unattractive. <laughs> um. <laughs> Especially to his father, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's a significant flaw to me. I don't, I, you're saying that you could find a character that's free of significant flaws, and I'm not sure you've done that. All right. Jon Snow. What about Jon Snow? Jon Snow. Uh yeah, I guess, I guess he's probably the closest thing to a to a pure hero that we have in the story. He does wrong by Ygritte, right? So yeah. he, he does wrong by her, but he does it in service to his sort of post as a spy. Yeah, yeah. Not not that it's forgivable, it's just that the fact it's just the fact that, that fate or Martin has thrown him into a situation where he is being forced to lie. For, right. Uh, for for the sake of the realm or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The story sort of beginning with the, the, the way halfhand mm-hmm. uh, without, without really explicit instruction or permission really sort of expects Snow to figure this treacherous, morally well, he, treacherous waters yes. out, right? In uh, fact, it begins with Corn Halfhand telling John to kill him. He has to, <laughs> he has to murder. I mean, talk about seal this in blood. This yeah, is a, a yeah. pact you're making with, you know, a, a man who's willing to sacrifice his life. All right. So, so Jon Snow is the counterexample. He's pretty good. All right. So I would, that's interesting because he's certainly more courageous, right? He's sort of the model of courage. Yeah. But I still think Sam is better. Maybe that tells something about you and me. Anyway, if, okay. I, if you were to come back on, which character would you want to talk about? Like all of these, all of these chapters are POV, right? Sure. Yeah. Would you want to? Would you want to do like a hound POV, or would you want to do a Tyrion POV? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I love the hound. I'd, I'd love. I'd love to talk about the hound. That'd be great. Is does the hound have a POV? I don't. Maybe the hound. I don't believe have... he does. Oh, geez. He shows up a lot in the uh, in the Arya chapters. So we'd have to choose an Arya or Sansa, maybe Sansa chapter to talk about yeah. the hound. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. So one of your favorite characters, really, you don't hear their interior voice. Yeah, I guess not. Again, your, your dogged commitment to superficiality. (laughs) Hey, I have one other question for you. All right. So in this chapter that we've been talking about at a certain point, Ned says that his, his sister was to have been the bride of Robert. Yes. Did Ned at the time of this chapter, did Ned know that she had been consensually with Rhaegar? I think so. So it's funny that in his own mind, he's thinking of her still as having, I mean, 
he must have been aware that she intended not to marry Robert. Well, here, here's another way to look at that. You could look at it as she was betrothed to Robert. Yeah. And yet she had taken a lover and married, maybe married secretly yeah. to Rhaegar. Right. So you could say, honestly, she was to be married to Robert simply because the, the betrothal was never broken. He's just only revealing half the story in that case. Right. There's another little piece of text where it says, and this is, you know, Ned, Ned's thoughts to himself, right? Mm-hmm. That Robert vowed to kill Rhaegar for what he did to her. Yeah. It's funny that he would think of it that way if he didn't think Rhaegar really did anything to Oh, him. interesting. Hmm. Hmm. But I can't tell, is that sort of... So you're suggesting that Ned maybe thinks that Lyanna... Uh, was raped and that she, she, but she cares, she cares enough about the unborn child that she wants Ned to raise him in secret, even if it was out of a, uh, an, an origin story of ill repute. I wasn't sure. And in fact, I think it is sometimes difficult to interpret the narrator narrator's voice in these point of view chapters. Uh, uh, yeah. Is, is this really Ned's thought? Is this Martin kind of speaking, but from sort of in some sense from Ned's point of view? Right. Uh, so, yeah, I guess the only way to answer this is to kind of look for these other clues throughout the, the books. And I'm sure that there are other people who have done that sort of thing. Yeah, but I found myself uncertain what Ned believed about the circumstances uh-huh. surrounding the honest death. Right. Uh, I also thought it was interesting that it said he sort of had a lapse in memory mm-hmm. around that time, uh, which I guess, you know, uh, the natural interpretation is that that had to do with his grief. But So if, if Ned were to say because of what he thought he did to her, that would, that would give up too much of the game. I think. Yeah, from, right. If you were an author, if you, if you qualified it in that way, that's too much to reveal at this stage of the, the narrative. Right. But put, saying he vowed to kill Rhaegar for what he did to her, I mean, if that's really what Ned thought, then it seems like he thought Rhaegar did something to her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it, it must have been very tricky to write, and maybe that's what, maybe that's what we're seeing here. Uh, it's mm-hmm. just that it was a tricky thing to write, and he had to make a decision there. Yeah, and honestly, at this point, does Martin – this is chapter four. Yeah. Does Martin really have all this fleshed out in his mind? I mean, he's sometimes Martin has described himself as an author with the metaphor of being a gardener. Yeah. So he gardens here and he gardens there and see what grows out of these narratives. Maybe he's got this complicated relationship with Jon Snow being a bastard on, on the page. Yeah. But he doesn't know the outcome yet. It's possible that Martin doesn't know how this story is going to end at chapter four. Right, right. It's kind of, interesting. A, kind of a non-answer, I suppose. Yeah. Sounds like you wimped out. Yeah, I did. I wimped out. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right, Chad, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate you revisiting this chapter very closely. This was a ton of fun. Thanks. getting geared up for the 6th annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, 
We've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved the venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. And now Steve and I have a relatively serious conversation about cripples, bastards, and broken things, punctuated by the first of many conversations about Roderick Castle's sideburns. Steve, you just recently watched episode four, Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. Which would you say you are? Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like the easy answer is the broken thing, um, because as far as I know, my birth certificate lines up. But, I mean, I'm not in the best shape. You can be a bastard at times. I've known you long enough to see okay. you be a bastard. Okay, so not necessarily in the, uh, so more in the in the colloquial sense. Yeah, I would, I wouldn't know otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> this episode seems to have a little bit of a theme related to compassion. Yeah. Uh, I would that. say Samuel Tarley, he's the portly fellow that makes it up north. Right. I'm not sure what he is, but he's he's a creature in need of compassion. Right. Yeah, and so that's and it's an interesting turn in the in the show and to have a very specific uh, spotlight on a notion of compassion because you don't really feel like because everything is there's so much order Mm-hmm. Compassion doesn't seem to fall into the, the world of order. So it, it it's kind of a jarring episode in that regard. You have John trying to show some compassion to Sam, mm-hmm. who's a coward. He even, he even says he's a coward. He's the coward of the county. <laughs> R.I.P. No. Kenny Rogers. R.I.P. Kenny Rogers. The coward. Of, that's a very underrated Kenny Rogers song. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean, if, sure. The, I mean, the gambler might as well be the national anthem. So, I mean, fine. I'm mean, not, not going to discount it. I'm not going to say the gambler is overrated. It is properly rated. It's it's a work of musical art. But Coward of the County has. I mean, it's it's um, it's graphic. Well, Coward of the County is interesting in that it's very dark. Mm-hmm. It's extremely dark, but it's a little bit peppy. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's 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 peppy dark, and that's I think that's what country music does so fine. That's how you know someone's really in trouble <laughs> when when the suicidal ideation is accompanied by a very <laughs> peppy tune. <laughs> Listen to it again because it does end with a slight ominous it feels like a short story like like he goes through the whole thing and you figure like okay well he's come full circle right so maybe he's not the coward of the county and, and then he just ends with they call him the coward of the county and it's just sort of like oh oh some oh did he not conquer it no he didn't it's, this is a cycle this is a yeah if you have a little peppy tune to it it means that you experience it in good times and in bad right so this is him sort of Managing his own cowardice. Sure. And I think think Samuel Tarley has, he's tried to manage his own cowardice, but somehow, somehow it hasn't worked out so well. Well, then that's a fascinating character. I mean, they get his backstory and this is the choice he took, but he also doesn't feel like, it it feels like he just is prolonging the inevitable. I mean, he couldn't have anticipated getting compassion going into this situation. All right. This episode ends with Catelyn taking Tyrion under... Arrest. Yeah, it's a really it, I, the scene is great. It's a great juxtaposition to the the earlier scene where he's being you know compassionate and he's making his offer so to speak. Because there's a certain similarity in terms of how it's filmed and where he's positioned. Oh, you're saying that when he first enters Winterfell, he's in the center of the Great Keep. Once yeah, once again holding all the attention, but this time yeah. he's managing the conversation, right? I mean, even when they're trying to be disrespectful, he still has the social gravitas to take this situation into his own. Now it's it's interesting how like and he makes you know he makes them come to his his level, right? Yeah, or he yeah. this, yeah, to, so that he can have so he doesn't have to look up, right? But so then we see him later. Now we have a situation where everybody rises and is pointing swords downward to him. I, I really like that book ending. Well, I think that Tyrion is used to being the center of attention wherever he goes. He attracts a lot of attention for a variety of reasons. Not all good. He's sort of learned to use that to his advantage. Well, and I think that there's, I mean, if you look at the title of the episode, do you think uh, Lady Stark has that same type of boldness? Should it be somebody who's not Tyrion? not a, an imp in that regard would she have confidence and you know and, and would everybody else respond so all right two things one is yes i think catlin is bold i think she's uh she's just like her father too bold too bold that's right and and i think that she probably would have tried to capture anyone of any stature i think that she probably brings more people to her support because Tyrion doesn't seem like he poses much of a threat. Right. Okay. So that's fair. Second thing, the title is interesting to me because you have these notable acts of compassion that we've already talked about, but then we have, I think, false compassion. Like for instance, when Littlefinger sidles up to Sansa mm-hmm. and tries to scare her with yeah. the story of the, yeah, the, the, the burn faced hound, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, by the way, <laughs> just a little, I mean, we've all seen that guy at the bar, right? So, yeah, so I think that this is clearly someone who's preying on someone who is less fortunate or weaker than himself. And if you look at the, the acts of compassion, the acts of compassion are primarily from the, the broken things to broken things, right? Uh-huh. I mean, that's, so that's, that's an important aspect of where the compassion is, is flowing from. And then we've already seen where Littlefinger 
as already said, you know, you're wise to distrust me. There's already this element of you can't trust anyone. And embedded in that is that sense of politicking, the, the sense of rank, all of that goes into it. But it's like when you when you sort of wipe that away, mm. uh, you, you tend to find maybe more pockets of compassion. And the question then, of course, is, is that compassion, is it fleeting? If one of these broken things finds themselves in a better situation, will they continue to have that? Will survival, Trump, compassion, all of those things? Yeah, happen? I think that we all have limits to our compassion, some of us more than others. And I think that to show compassion is in itself dealing from a position of power. Mm, fair. But yeah. I, I would like to talk about, if you don't mind, uh, this is something I've been waiting to discuss with you. Sir Roderick Castle is Lady Stark's traveling companion. Right. And I'd like to talk about his sideburns. <laughs> yeah, I think this is important. When your sideburns get that long, are they sideburns anymore? Should should we call them? I mean, it's just... <laughs> Yeah, a, I don't. Is this just a, a different sort of beard now, or are they, should we? Are they face burns? They're face burns or neck burns. Yeah, yeah. and so his sideburns, and then sideburns can become mutton chops. Mutton chops can become beard. But I don't feel like his is his is just sideburns. See, I think that in the modern world, the mutton chop really is the pinnacle of the sideburn. And if you can get a mutton chop that's just really poofy, that like really gives your face volume, that's as much that is socially acceptable. Right. And, you know, that'd probably work better if you were sort of a, you know, 1970s guitarist or something. Roderick Castle has taken this to a whole new level. It's almost a neckerchief. It probably keeps his neck warm. A neckerchief fashioned from one's own sideburns. Now that to me is, that's being resourceful, right? It really is. If there was a pandemic, he could use it as a face mask. That's true. That's very true. <laughs> it definitely shows, I mean, I'm sure it can be a sexual thing too, but I mean, it definitely shows. Oh, I never thought about that. Well, think about it. It'll change you a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Wait, give me, give me a second here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just oh, oh. picture, picture handlebars. Oh my. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's got to go. Th he's there's an effort, right? And I mean, I don't know exactly where he fits in, you know, class uh, status. So I don't know if he does if he shaves his own face, but he either has to go through it every day, going, "Yeah, I'm still going to do this look," or he has to ask somebody, like, you know, just a little, a little off the underneath. Well, here, let me let me give you a little context here. So he's the master of arms, which means he trains all of these Stark men. In swordplay. Okay. So this guy, he's kind of a badass. And I don't know if these uh, neckerchief burns help him fight. Yeah. But th they must have some purpose. It feels like, can you like... Maybe maybe he puts his keys on it. Uh, so, it feels, yeah, it right. Let's little... say you came in really close. And you could just grab those things. And it just I can just imagine that really, really hurting. Yeah. Unless he's just that good. He's like, hey, I dare you. I dare you to come taunt. Yeah. yeah, he's just hanging it out there. Like when you're playing with a cat and you've got like a stick and a little string at the end. He's just like, no, come get it. Come get it. Doesn't It seems like a weakness, doesn't it? He's like Marshawn Lynch out there with his dreads. No, grab him. Go ahead. See what happens uh, to He you. could hang little bells off the, <laughs> off the end. <laughs> Again, it's sort of a sexual thing. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, give me another second here. <laughs> oh. Well, <laughs> It does feel a little professional wrestlerish. He's like the ravishing Rick Rude of the battlefield. I think we've certainly come to a central truth of 
Game of Thrones here. Roderick Castle is the ravishing Rick Rude <laughs> of Westeros. I'm interested. Yeah. Now, see, now that makes a lot more sense. Now I'm like, oh, okay, now I get it. If you're below 40 years of age, do, <laughs> do a YouTube search for ravishing Rick Rude. It, he's a real guy. This oh, yeah. really happened. It, Hopefully, it will never happen again. This and what guy. I love about Ravishing Rick Rude is he could have been, he could have been very popular if he was Rick Rude. He could have been very popular if he was Ravishing Rick. He, he tripled down. <laughs> he really, tri- even just the name Rick. Can we just yeah. say that? Just <laughs> the name Rick tells you everything you need to know. A wrestler named Rick. That's, now that sounds like a really good uh, Shel Silverstein uh, poem. But. <laughs> All right. Um, there was a mention of a pirate in this episode. There was feel- a mention of a pirate. How do you feel about pirates? Um, I, I, I'll be honest. Hearing the pirate thing, I'm like, I don't think I'm ready to add pirates. <laughs> no? I feel pirates like- are always interesting to me because they're really bad people, and yet we're pretty happy with our children dressing up as them. It's, this is part of the, this is something as a parent I've never been able to get my hands on. They're like, look, he's like a cute little pirate. I'm like, well, which part is the cute? Well, I think that a, a lot can be made up if you have a talking bird. Ah. Uh, like, you could be a moral monster, but if you have a talking bird that just perches on your shoulder? Yeah. I think it's a combination, right? I don't think it's enough to be talking. I think it's got a little side-to-side head bob that they can do. Yeah, the, that's the my little favorite dance. part. My favorite part of parrots. Talking's parrots, fine. Parrots and pirates. Yeah, exactly. The thing about parrots is like, yeah, they can talk, but they're just kind of repeating sounds. It's that little dance that they do, that little head move. Good lord, that is intoxicating. <laughs> I think I think I'm just taken by dancing animals. Uh, what if it's Sarah Palin on The Masked Singer? What would you, What do you think about that? <sighs> Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, sort of the same concept. There's always right? limits to compassion. See what That's I mean? that, that, I think, and that, it seems like a, a real good summation, right? <laughs> you can have that is compassion. a case in point. You can have compassion down, but you can't have compassion up. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. That is both true and pithy. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so you're at... We're at episode four now. Are you whole hog in? How are you feeling about the first season as a whole? I, I think I'm pretty close to whole hog in. Episode three was the one that really hooked me. So I think that there were some elements of this particular episode that didn't, I wasn't as hooked, but episode three did its work to keep me being like, okay, all right. I know, I know what I want out of this so far. So I'll sit through some themes and tropes that I might not necessarily be all that uh, jazzy about, but I'll, I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. You know, I used the phrase whole hog in just now for the first yeah. time. Okay. I've never used that phrase. I've never heard that phrase. Whole hog in. It, I just feel really dirty about the whole thing. Yeah. I'm not, is that even how the phrase goes? No, it's not. And, it, but now that I've said it that way, yeah, I, I feel like I need to apologize to you and everyone who's listening. I just want to know where that hog is going. No, no, you don't. <laughs> I mean, it's all of it. <laughs> I mean, assuming at once. Have you seen a hog? That's not a. That's not a mean feat. <laughs> uh, all right, I think we're good. <laughs> Jeez.
And now for this week's Bird's Eye View. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I want to talk to you about one of my favorite topics, and that's love. That's right. My favorite kind of love is the love expressed between ancient suzerain and vassal agreements in legal contractual language. So there were these ancient political arrangements between more powerful kings and less powerful kings. The more powerful king, let's call him the pharaoh, would be the suzerain. Now, this is medieval language that we're applying to the ancient world, but I hope that you'll indulge me. The lesser king, we might call this king the lord, again, anachronistic language, would be called the vassal. And so you've got these asymmetrical political relationships between greater kings and lesser kings. And in these contracts between these kings, we have lots of love language, lots of expressions of love, and this is official political language. So it may seem odd to us that expressions of love would find their way into these legal documents because we think of love differently. We think of love less politically than our forebears. I bring this up because Ned and Robert, in my opinion, clearly love each other but not in a way that we easily recognize in the modern world. Here's an example. In one letter from the 14th century BC, modern-day Lebanese coast, a king pleads for military enforcements from the Egyptian pharaoh. And in this case, the pharaoh is the more powerful king in this contractual relationship. And the Canaanite king recalls their treaty and uses the phrase, and I'm quoting here directly, If I die, who will love you? Besides being absurdly passive-aggressive, the point here is that the regional leader is contractually devoted to the pharaoh. So while the word is best translated as love, it carries the meaning of devotion, loyalty, obedience, service, etc. Not in the same way we use love. This is a very politically oriented love. Now, for the lesser party in these arrangements, demonstrating love for the king looks one way, and then the king's demonstration for the love of the lesser party looks a bit different. Simply put, the love in this contract is asymmetrical. Modern analogy, think of the relationship between Oprah and Stedman. Stedman is clearly the lesser vassal in this relationship. So contracts between vassals and their more powerful counterparts could cover matters of military alliances, expressions of worship. Uh, If you were disloyal, there'd be consequences. Agreements for open channels of communication, like if I'm going to send you an envoy or a messenger, you have to let them in the border. You can't keep them waiting at the border, that sort of thing. Regular diplomatic gift exchanges and marriage arrangements, etc., etc. All right, so that's ancient Near East. And we, we know that Martin likes to play with hybrids between ancient, modern, and medieval. But let's talk about specifically a medieval example of what we're talking about here. So we'll skip in both time and place to the medieval Frankish Empire. This relationship between the kings and the lords was largely driven by economics. But it would be difficult to overstate the importance of warfare for this suzerain-vassal relationship. Many regions were simply not self-sufficient, economically speaking. And so these lords depended on regular battles whereby they would get richer by way of wartime spoils. Simply put, the political relationship was fortified by going to war together and getting wealthier together. Sometimes the lesser vassals would push the Merovingian king into battle even when there was a peace offer at the table. 
So with Ned and Robert, we see a relationship built on childhood friendship. But it's been politicized at least twice in battle. First, the North, Ned especially, was integral to winning Robert's rebellion. And secondly, Ned backed Robert in putting down the Greyjoy Rebellion. In this way, Ned has expressed his love for his king. And then in peacetime, their relationship changes dramatically. In other words, they express their love less often for each other in peacetime. And this teaches us something important about suzerains and vassals. And this is true for both Martin's world and our own past. So here it is. Political contracts are made in large part because of war or the possibility of war. My sense is that Robert feels another war on the horizon. His choice for Ned as Hand of the King is indeed because he loves him. And this, I think, does include his childhood affection for Ned. But it's also a different sort of love. It's the sort of love that commands his loyalty and his service and his obedience. It's the sort of love that a king can command of a vassal. And that's all for this week. Next time on Electric Boogaloo. This episode had a lot of action. It did. It had quite a bit of action. And, and it was almost more, like... A little bit more breastfeeding than I probably would have enjoyed. <laughs>